evening, everybody. Um, out of curiosity, when my music is playing, can you hear me doing stuff? Because I, I didn't even... Um, anyways, uh, tonight's show is about... We're going to continue from last night talking about falling action and identifying the climax of your story. Because a lot of times I think people um, don't know... Uh, <sighs> Or sometimes don't recognize their climax when, um, especially when it comes to pantsers, um, um, who don't plan for their climax, um, and then they reach it and don't even realize it. Uh, I've been known to do it myself. I once plotted two different climaxes and didn't even realize it. So <clears throat> until I was writing, I went, "Oh, look, there you go." I was done before I knew it. Anyways, <clears throat> um. Well, we're going to be talking about that and um, how to work it and um, uh, all that stuff. Anyways, um, I got Julie on the line, and I'm going to put her on the air, and we're going to get started. We're going to talk through some movies and um, uh, go from there. I think that using pop culture references that you guys are familiar with will be really helpful in helping to identify um uh, plot issues and um, the climax. Hello, Julie. Hi. The climax <laughs> is the, me- the climax. <laughs> <laughs> well, think you know, of it very literally. Okay. When things have gotten really messy, you might just see it the climax. <laughs> what I um, oh, somebody's buffering. Um, what I had thought about earlier in the day was um, the difference between internal and external motivations and how your plot is driven and how mm-hmm. that can actually determine your climax, uh, whether you're dealing with an external conflict um, like what we see in, say, um, Star Wars A New Hope. There's, a, you know, the internal motivations of the characters are, are secondary to the external plot of um, the Empire uh, fighting the rebels. And, of course, the climax of A New Hope is the destruction of the Death Star. Do you disagree? No, I don't disagree. <laughs> you can. Um, I think, you know, I think sometimes a story can have moments, um, not, not, not the, okay, because the, that is the external motivations and the external conflict is the, the key point in that story. I agree that that is the climax of the story. In a story where there is, um, more of an internal motivation. Um, the Go big, to the Empire Strikes Back for that. Right. The big, the big action sequence um, isn't necessarily um, the climax of the story. So, um, you know, so sometimes you can have a story where it's, or a story where it's, it's a little bit um, not quite as obvious what the climax is because it can, it can almost depend on how you look at it. And I think a really good example of that is um, Galaxy Quest. I know it's a comedy, but 
what is the climax of the story? Is it when they finally defeat the bad guy? I can't remember his name, the big green dude. Um, is it when um, Jason lives up to the potential that the Thermians saw in him? Is it when he's finally honest? Um, is it when they make it back to Earth? You know, I mean, you could argue that depending upon how you view the storyline, you could argue that almost any of those are um, the climax of the story. If that makes sense. Yeah, you could. Well, it depends. It's like there's. Last we talked about plots and subplots, and there are subplots in Galaxy Quest that are um, resolution is um, is, achi- um, is achieved. Mm-hmm. Um. And you know. So they they win the day. Um, uh, dude gets laid. You could, you could, you, depending upon, you know, if tentacle sex is your jam, you could argue that that was the climax of the story. Guy makes it out alive. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Guys, are, yes, the red shirt survives. But if we break it down into a movie where there are two points, um, where it could be argued that there is um, two different climaxes, um, <clears throat> uh, the Princess Bride. So what is the climax of the Princess Bride? Is it when Indigo kills the six-fingered man, or is it when Humperdinck surrenders to Wesley? Or when, well, I guess it's pretty close to the same thing, but when Wesley finally gets Buttercup, because it's a love story, right? Right. And so Buttercup's the central character. So the central theme of the Princess Bride, has to be her arc. So right. her being rescued and Humperdinck surrendering is the climax of the movie. Um, Indigo's climax of him killing um, the man who murdered his father is a subplot. He's Count Rugen. That's, a, that's an entire subplot. So um, you have to uh, recognize um, the difference between the main plot and the subplot, and that usually depends on your main character, your protagonist. Uh, but the Princess Bride is, you know, a definite one um, that you you're almost like, hmm. <laughs> but if you keep it in your head that that Buttercup is the central character of the story, her being rescued from her circumstances um, is the climax of the story, and everything after that is falling action. We talked about Star Wars before. Um, the Empire Strikes Back. Now, some people, I've had this argument with people before, where they said that Han, that the that Han Solo being put in the carbonite was the climax of the movie. Well, no, it's not. No, I totally it's agree. It's Vader with that. telling Luke that he's his father. His father That's right. the climax of yeah of, of of the Empire Strikes Back. And I think that, um, that 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 shows it could be a couple things. It could be um, at the time I think that there was a a bias for Han Solo's plotline. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people liked him better than Luke, so that could have just been reflective of fan bias. But I think there's also a natural bias towards um, action climaxes, and that was um, a character emotional climax. Um, in that story, it was not. I mean, granted, there was an action scene happening. I mean, he lost a hand and all. I mean, that didn't happen without action. But um, 
the big action scene or the big action moment or the big, you know, the ceiling carbonite, whatever that, there is, I think there's a bias uh, to feel that the the climax of a story is um, explosive in some way. And I think a lot of times people don't look at what is emotionally explosive. Well, it comes back to um, moments that are shocking and moments that are satisfying um, and moments that resonate with you emotionally. And let's be honest, when it comes to The Empire Strikes Back, the the moment when Han Solo is put in the carbonite and you don't know if he survived, that's got a hundred times more impact than finding out that Vader is Luke's father. Because you know yeah. Luke's going to survive this. He's going to, you know, he's he's going to get away. You know, he's just hanging there. He's going he's going to get away. But up until that moment when they tell you that it was successful, you don't know if Han Solo has survived that. Also, you leave the movie. Um, um, the movie ends on effectively a cliffhanger for Han, and it doesn't really. There's a bit of an emotional cliffhanger for Luke, but you know he's safe aboard the ship and um, he's he's okay. So it's iffy, right? But you know, but structurally, um, the Empire Strikes Back. The climax is later and Luke in the hand, and I'm your father. Um, well, that comes down to what the again what the um, that whole, you know, new hope through Return of the Jedi, ultimately the main character is Luke, right? Um, right. So he has to really be involved in the climax of, um, just like in Return of the Jedi, I think I, I think it's, you know, clear that the um, him defeating Vader is the... Um, now, that one, it's all in one scene, but there's like a literal, um, an action climax, the emotional climax um, um, is obviously right after, um, but they don't happen at the exact. They happen kind of at the same time, but they're not the exact same thing, because the whole issue with him and Vader and 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 trying to save his father and and that that whole that whole segment was, I would say that was the climax of Luke's character arc. Arc, yeah. As opposed I would agree. to. As opposed to the 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 defeat of um, the antagonist. And you see that the interesting thing is that in some of these, um, Return of the Jedi is actually a really good example to talk about climax and falling action, because. Um, in a lot of these stories, in a lot of the, in a lot of some of the examples we've given, um, there's very little falling action after the climax, and some there are more. Some there's more, some there's less. And it's interesting that I don't know. I don't if I don't. I, mean, I don't know what anybody's personal opinion on this was, but I remember when Return of the Jedi came out, there was so much criticism for what amounted to the falling action in that movie. 
um, the kind of everybody holding hands around a campfire singing Kumbaya and the (laughs) astral, the astral projections of the other Jedi in the background. And, um, you know, it, there wasn't much. I mean, they were talking like there's, there wasn't a lot of falling action, right? It's not like they tied up a lot of loose ends. They just kind of gave a scene that's like, you know, and they rode off into the sunset and all was well type of moment for the re, for the viewers. And I think a lot of people, um, I've wondered about the criticism of that scene. I know that I particularly found it kind of unsatisfying, um, but... You know, I don't know. I don't know. Considering, um, considering what where they were in the in the arc and what had happened, I don't know how you could. What more? There's you run that risk of having the action start to rise again when you do too much after the climax. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they had started, you know, making you curious about what had come next in the story arc or what was going on with the Republic or any of that stuff, um, you. Then, then the bitching would shift to, well, now we've got another cliffhanger, or we need to know what comes next. Um, so I can kind of see why they would leave it where they did, uh, which is just kind of a, all is well, everybody's happy in the moment, um, the future is, you know, infer what you like about it, and... Um, I don't know, it, but it was, it was interesting that it was just kind of, it was very... Uh, it was it was sort of it was it wasn't abrupt the falling action and that wasn't abrupt cuz i would say that uh uh empire strikes back the falling action was much more abrupt in the empire strikes back i mean i think a lot of people walked out of the movie theater kind of like in shock shell um, yeah shell shocked because we lost han um yeah, you lost han dad holy shit yep he's lost <laughs> his hand and that's it it's like all of that happens and you're kind of going and then you walk out of the theater and you kind of have that kind of like oh my god it's just I you had a moment you know it was like ooh. and sometimes that can actually be really good it's kind of like wow um uh I walked out of Suicide Squad with the same reaction kind of going oh my god what did I just see <laughs> I've not seen Suicide Squad um I didn't get to see it in a the theater I just was uh I, I would actually recommend that uh, I recommend seeing it at home when you have moments. The, the beginning of the movie is very hard, and uh, it's, it's something that you know you might want to be careful with. Take, be careful with and take breaks from, um, or have a, a spotter with you that can tell you when certain scenes are over. Um, but some movies just do like you walk out of. Uh, I mean, it wasn't um, the other movie I saw recently that kind of left me shell shocked at the end, or I just kind of was going, "Wow!" Was Magnificent Seven. Um, and um, and and sometimes with movies like that, when you walk out and you're shell shocked like that, you don't even know if you liked it or not, because you're so <laughs> you're so kind of going, ah, what's going on here? I I don't know, and maybe maybe that's maybe that's the um, author or the director's intent is to leave you in that place and kind of make you think and. Um, and maybe it was an accident. They didn't intend to leave their, you know, readers, you know, shell shocked like that. But it's something to pay attention to when you're writing your falling action. You know, do you want to leave people in that kind of shell shocked state? I remember coming out of a movie shocked, and it was The Matrix, and it wasn't like a shell shock. It was like, 
I need more time with that. <laughs> so I was on a date. It was actually my husband. Um, we were, It was like our second date. And I turned to him, and he got this look on his face, too, and I'm like, I think we need to go see that again. And we went, got in line at the box office, bought more tickets, went back in and watched it again because we were like, we need more time with this. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't so much that we didn't understand it. Um, it was just that we, oh, there was just something about it. And it was just, it was super fascinating. And it was like this, we had to go back. We had to go see that again. Um, and we did. And then we saw it a third time. <laughs> like later on that month. So... So I, I'm going to throw this. There, I was thinking about another movie about. She meant the new. Um, she meant the new Magnificent Seven. Yeah, yeah, the new right? one, the one that's yeah, the one that I, I think is actually still in the theaters. Um, and the original, I will say that the original um, had a little bit of that shell shock vibe to it too. Um, it's just when you add, um, when you add like modern cinematography and and it's just a really banging ensemble cast. Um, it it was just kind of like I mean I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but um, they did a really if you saw the original, um, um, yeah, you can <laughs> expect a lot the same. <laughs> um, but the movie I was thinking about yesterday, I was thinking about the climaxes and falling action, and sometimes it's really subtle. Um, f- trying to identify what the climax is and what the falling action, and and so I'm going to throw out an example here. And I was actually I struggled with figuring out what the climax was, um, and I started working back through that's falling action, that's falling action, that's falling action, that's falling action, and then I got to where I thought the climax was because. Um, you want me to guess? Is that was that where we're going with this? Yeah, well, I'm not at which movie. I'm going to tell you which movie. You tell me where you think okay. IMAX is. Steel Magnolias. Okay. Steel Magnolias. Um, <sighs> when Shelby tells her mom there's going to be a baby. Because everything after that is the consequences of that pregnancy, up to and including her death. Hmm. So that's well, what was example. your choice? Um, Shelby's funeral. And I thought that I was like, you know, I need to think on that is why I think that that's the climax of the story because that's really morbid. Um, well, mine's morbid or yours is morbid. I think they're both morbid. They're both morbid. But yeah, it's, just, it's, it's terribly sad. But it's it's definitely around Shelby. Um, but I think the central character in that story is um, Malin. Yeah, is Malin, and I and I so I had a hard time deciding between was the climax when. Um, was the climax when she had to accept her daughter doing something she really didn't want her to do and risking her life, or was it that complete emotional breakdown in the um, the funeral at the after the funeral? And I felt like the climax of the story was that emotional breakdown 
Um, and I think it's because she had been so emotionally contained uh, through the whole movie mm-hmm. that that sort of emotional, um, that grief felt like the effective climax of the story to me. But I guess I was I was torn over the the one you picked too. I was like, well, was it was it was it when she decided to have a baby, and and Malin had to accept it, um, because you can't control your kids, and she had to just accept that that was the way it was going to be, or was it after Shelby died and all the consequences of that decision? So, um, but this is an example of where I don't think it's necessarily easy always to spot where the climax is. Well, there's the internal and the external. The internal mm-hmm. is Milan accepting that Shelby is going to have this baby and it's going to kill her. The external is... We you look at external events in the Magnolias, you have the wedding, um, you have the baby, you have the funeral. In the emotional, internal motivations, you have Malin coming to terms with the fact that Shelby's marrying this man, and she's moving out of her house, and she's losing control of her daughter, whom she spent a great deal of time controlling (laughs) her entire life. And then she's making this decision to have a baby, knowing how dangerous it is, and then the ramifications of that. So... Externally and internally, the middle of the plot, the climax, is the pregnancy. If you look at the external events, the pregnancy is in the middle. That's the climax. And her death is a ramification of that. And if you look at internally, it's Malin's acceptance of this pregnancy is the emotional um, pivot that happens in the movie. And... Malin goes back to being Shelby's cheerleader. Gives her a kidney. Fights so hard to make Shelby live. And then she has to let Shelby Shelby go. I'm going to make myself cry. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sitting here getting kind of weepy too. All the movies you could have picked. Um, I blocked but, out a scene. I completely blocked out a scene, which was when she had cut Shelby's life support. Yeah. And she was the only one who could stay with Shelby through the through her death. I um, can't even. Don't stop, stop. I'll be crying like a baby over here. But I, I really do believe the pregnancy, no matter how you look at it, emotionally, internally, or externally, is the climax of the movie. That's just me. I guess I I guess because I don't see everything that happened, I see the action still rising after um, the pregnancy is why I don't think of that as the climax. Um, One of the reasons why I do is because of the way they blocked it. The way they set that up. We go from Shelby being pregnant, it being announced, to Jack being two years old. And Shelby needing a kidney transplant. Or Jack True, being ever yeah. how old he was, a year old, and and for a minute there, when he when they're when they're singing Jack his birthday song and they're not showing you Shelby, the implication is is that Shelby's already dead, that that this has killed her, 
and and then you realize that Shelby was holding Jack. Or was she? Either way, you don't see Shelby in that scene at the start of it. And for a moment there, you think Shelby's already dead. Yeah. So that's why I kind of think that the pregnancy is the climax because of the way it's it's framed afterwards. Because we don't see the pregnancy. Um, we see Jack and then almost like... Not far from the birthday is the kidney transplant, and then Shelby's dead. Hmm. I guess I'm still, now that I've got the, I won't drag it out, but now that I've got the hospital scene in my head, which I was completely blocking out, (laughs) <laughs> I'm more convinced that that's the climax of the story, which is so horrible. It's so horrible. Um, it is really horrible, but it's still a consequence. It is a consequence, but um, and it's an and it's also a resolution. And so is the funeral. Hmm. The funeral is the ultimate resolution. Yeah, the the funeral is when, you know, I think that there's the the real resolution to where they started when they had the movie. Um, when the movie started, when they talk about... Because um, they start the movie with talking about Shelby being told that children aren't possible and that that's why she was, you know, upset that day and she was off that day in the beauty salon was because they'd been told children weren't possible. And then the resolution to that is, you know... That direct resolution is is when Shelby is now dead and Malin is having to um, accept everything that's happened. Um, so yeah, but it's a diff- that's a difficult a difficult movie to um, identify. Um, and I I I I I see what you mean about the the death being a consequence of something that happened. Um, earlier, but you could kind of that doesn't. I'm, I'm not completely swayed to that being the climax, though, because a lot of um, stuff it happens in plots or consequences of things that happen in the um, I agree. rising I action. Agree. So, but, um, um, so it's just it's kind of a. I mean, but it's it's one of those things of like you know, ultimately probably the only person who knows for sure what the what the climax of that story was is the person who wrote it. Um, he worked as a play, and it was actually about his real life sister. So, um, and I thought, and I don't know. It about his sister, I wouldn't ask him. <laughs> no, we don't need to know the climax of that man's life. Um, Still, Magnolias is beautiful. It, it is. is a beautiful movie about um, the relationships you have with women. Um, your mom your friends your sisters you know just it's just it's just a relationship movie with about how women form connections and it's beautiful it is beautiful it's a lovely story um i saw it on a first date <laughs> oh that was a mistake <laughs> 
Yeah. I make it all the way to the part where Malin's picking up Jack, and then I lose it. When he's walking down the street, I can shut up. (laughs) (laughs) I always cry during that movie. I mean, I... I'm not much for crying in films, but that one, it doesn't matter. I mean, I can think about some of the scenes in that movie, and I just start tearing up. It's terrible. I mean, it's 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 because it's so well done. It, it's because it resonates. It's because it's because no one, you know, it's a great example of um, having your protagonist not be perfect. Um, no one was perfect in that movie. Everyone was flawed. Everyone was quirky. Everyone was. Um, doing their best despite their flaws for the most part. Um, people went through weird times, but they continued to support each other. I mean, it's just it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful example of characterization, of um, internal motivation. It's the Malin's evolution through the story is just beautiful to watch, even if it is painful. And it's just it well, was my favorite character is Weeza. Weeza. <laughs> I don't know how you say your name, sweetheart, so I'm just going to call you Ed. Ed in the chat room says that feels that Shelby's collapse is the pivotal point. And it could be argued that Shelby's collapse is the um, climax because it's a consequence of her pregnancy and everything after that. Um, is a consequence of her kidney failure. Yeah, yeah. But the way my head works is that I tend to um, connect events in a certain way, which is why, for me, the pregnancy is the turning point in the plot, and therefore that's the climax of the plot, Um, which, yes, leaves a lot of falling action, but that's just the way my brain works. And speaking of falling action, that actually can point to that sometimes falling action can be and should be abrupt, and sometimes it's half the story. Well, yeah, because if you'd have ended it, um, the falling action can't be can't be abrupt in, in Steel Magnolias because no. there there needs to be closure. There needs to be um, movement for all the characters as they come to terms with the ramifications of. The uh, the events that take, that take place in the movie. <sighs> That's messing me up. Can we pick a new movie? <laughs> I gotta pick a new movie. I gotta pick something different. <laughs> so, um, okay, so another one where I think that you have in different internal and external um, pressures, and they make for two different climaxes in it. And this isn't going to make any sense to anybody who hasn't watched Bull, and I'm not going to give specific examples, but they seem to be following a formula in that this is a TV show, obviously not a movie, where the internal climax, kind of the of the internal motivations, is the moment when Bull understands what it's going to take to sway the jury, mm-hmm. and when he implements whatever it's going to be whatever change has to happen. And usually it's getting that, that change involves getting the defendant on board with their 
own case. That seems to be their their approach so far. But that seems to, to me, that was the thing I initially, because the obvious climax of an external is when they win the case, right? And then things very, and they do tend to have falling action where they find the real guilty person or whoever in whatever the plot is involved in that show. There's somebody, you know, they do have a bit of falling action where they resolve the plot. So you're not just left wondering who really killed this person or who really stole that or whatever. So that, that, so you could argue that you have from the, um, the external side, you have the case, and when the case is won, everything after that is the falling action. That's the climax. But because so much of the story is about Bull trying to read the jury, get the jury, they're always about, it's about getting the jury to see things the way they want them to see it. To me, the climax of each episode is that moment when he understands how to turn the jury and the implementation. I agree with of that. It, not the actual winning of the case. Well, you know, well, you know, when, you, when you look at crime procedurals, the um, the obvious climax in all crime procedurals is the um, arrest of the of the, of the guilty party. Mhm. Mhm. You look at the show, The Closer. Um, definitely in the closer, the climax of every episode is. The confession. Right. And a lot Whereas of times... Whereas in major the, crimes, it's the identification of the culprit. Right. And a lot of times in the closer, that confession... there was, I think there was, I recall, there were a few episodes where there was stuff, you know, there was stuff that happened that was like wrapping up... Some, the falling action actually had more to do with wrapping up the subplots going on in the episode than anything to do with the main story arc. Um, they kind of had that formula where once she got the confession, you kind of didn't usually didn't deal much with the sus- suspect anymore, and you went on and dealt with the other minor things that came up, her finding her glasses or having a cookie. Or, you know, it's just well, law and order isn't law and order isn't a regular um, crime procedural. If it's, it's no, it's a different it's a kettle different of fish formula. because you've got it's got. Um, two different acts. Yeah, they've got a first act with the law and the second act with the order or the other way around. They have the cop side of it, the investigation, and then they have the prosecution. And it's, you, it's, it, Yeah, it's a very different formula. So because you essentially have um, two to three different protagonists in law and order. You have the cops, then you have the DA, um, and each, you know, there's different motivations for the characters, and therefore the art changes. So it's just a it's it's just a different perspective. It's actually Law and Order. The way it's set up is kind of um, contrary to story dynamics. <laughs> yeah, it's it. like, yeah, it's like they. Um, and that's actually probably one of the reasons why it was as successful as it was for as long as it was, is because they did something. I'm not saying that it was, it's a good idea to just always break away from the rules. They did something that was just so different in in crime procedurals and um, police procedurals that it made everybody kind of do a double take and go, what? <laughs> um, okay. 
it was different. It, it was very different. Um, and I, I, I think you're right. I, I think that's one reason why it was successful. But the general formula with cop shows, I mean, it, it seems like each show, it seems like now um, shows try to come up with some kind of different formula um, to kind of separate themselves from the pack that they're in. And mm-hmm. sometimes those formulas work and we like them and sometimes they don't. But often I think one of the things they play with is the climax of what the climax is. Is it catching the person? Is it just identifying who they are? Is it um, cleaning up the mess? Is it, you know, what is it? Um, so, like, I only saw a few episodes of um, um, I I hate it when I have word retrieval issues. What the hell? Um, that show, the show that was based in New York, and it uh, it was about the missing persons unit. Oh, um, without a trace, without a trace. Yes, the climax of that wasn't the, obviously it wasn't the arrest. Although I think the arrest often went hand in hand with the climax. It was obviously the retrieval of the person who was missing. Or right. assuming the person survived, because they didn't always. Um, so that was a little bit of a different spin. And oftentimes a little bit more, um, I think there was something kind of hopeful about that, that kind of kept them on the air probably, in my estimation, a little bit longer than the show probably would have run otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, People play with different ways of finding the climax in a movie or finding the climax in a TV show to give something kind of a, a different spin on the same old trope because we've all seen um, crime dramas. We've all seen them, you know, and for a long time they all were just different flavors of the exact same thing. And then CSI came around and shocked us all. It was a whole all. different kettle of fish. Yeah. Yes, it completely shocked us all because it – delved down into the procedural and the 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 evidence was the focus and finding the key piece of evidence was the climax or interpreting the evidence correctly was the climax and it was a little bit it was just a different spin um and then that got done to death and we all got burned out on on procedure but you know i mean there's different ways of figuring out how to to bring um, a, a similar storylines to to, the, to a climax, and some of these shows have what I would call steep falling action, where it's like you get the climax and then Boom, you get the you're credits. <laughs> it's like a black screen and it says directed by, and you're like, and you're like, really, oh. really, Don, <laughs> really, Don, is that is, 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 is that how you want to do this, Don? Is that his name, exactly. Belisero, Don Belisero, Don Don Belisero, yes. Um, Bass like, asked me in the chat room if the climax of Ties That Bind um, is John, is Rodney sitting John's collar. No. Um, you need to keep in mind that Ties That Bind is written in a series of novellas. So um, Rodney and John collaring isn't the climax of the entire series. I would say it's probably the climax of that particular novella. 
I can look at my notes to tell you for certain. Because <laughs> it's been a while since I've even read it, to be honest. Um, but it's not the climax of the entire series. In fact, we haven't reached the climax of the entire series in Ties That Bind. No, the North Star, I mean, yes, the climax is going to come in the North Star, but to be perfectly honest, when you at when you, when you look at the the breadth of how the um um how I structured ties that bind, the the natural climax of ties that bind is going to be when Rodney tells John he loves him. Mm-hmm. That's the climax of ties that bind. Um it it has to be. Otherwise, I'll be rising. Uh, I'll, um, I'll be moving into rising action again, and that'll be ridiculous. Not that I I've known do that, and I never discussed it with you because you were clearly writing a romance, and um, Rodney's had this um, internal emotional reservation, and um, yeah, that seemed like where that was going to go. Yeah, I mean, but this is how you were going to get there. Um, has been a wild ride. <laughs> <laughs> but that was always going to be the, um, the climax of Ties That Bind. Um, Rodney admitting um, his feelings for John. And it's going to be um, a hard road for him. It's, 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 it's a very difficult journey that Rodney has taken um, to that moment. And it's not about whether or not he actually does love John because he does. I mean, that's pretty obvious in the things that happen, especially in the North Star, when he almost sacrifices his mark for John, um, which you guys can see on um, my site as a preview. Um, but it's, in in Rodney's case, and ties that bind, admitting his feelings out loud is... a huge huge act of submission. Mm-hmm. It's the last step he takes into um, his relationship with John and he surrenders to all of it. And it's more about surrendering his emotional well-being to his dom than his physical well-being, which, which he's already given John. Because um, the last time he did that um, it nearly broke him. So that's the climax for ties that bind that is coming. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Thanks, Dark. I like my new site too. I'm I'm really enjoying. Um, it's cleaner. I like it. It's a lot more. It's got a lot more personality to it, and so I'm I'm really enjoying the the new look. It's the same template I run on Rough Trade. Um, so it's really it's it's really awesome how um, versatile that template is. So really, it's the same one. Yeah, I would not have suspected. Um, it, but uh, yeah, it um, looks great. 
Suzanne, if you go to the search box at the very top of my page, and there's a little um, a little out, a little magnifying glass search box thing, you click on that and put in North Star, you will find um, the sneak preview. Um, it was a Christmas present last year for my readers, and it's not linked anywhere. <clears throat> <clears throat> okay. Um, so, in terms of climaxes in stories, so I picked it. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always willing to pick at my own um, work if it helps other people. Um, I mentioned emergence has craft issues, and I know that um, it has three climaxes because it's three separate <laughs> stories. Okay, that's why. So, because somebody actually um, did contact me about um, some of the stuff I said in the in the show, and we talked a little bit about emergence um, uh, late last night, and um, we were talking about. I said, you know, in terms of the action rising again, it's because effectively the story has three separate climaxes because it should have been written as three separate novels, um, mm-hmm. and it basically is. It's basically three separate novels crammed into like 230,000 words, which is about three novels. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and I could I could do that. I could have made that three separate novels, but, you know, um so if you want like an example of something that has um three climaxes in it, that's one. That's one. One of the first climax is um Tony's emergence and then bonding. And then the action falls. Um up to them going to um, England, and the, the the literal climax with the big battle sequence in in England, and then the action falls again when they go back home, and then the action starts to rise again, leading into the triad bond, and that's the third climax, and then we have very steep falling action, like literally a scene um, before the end of the what should have been the third novel, so. Um, So, you know, there you go. Um, Which is when you go emergence book one, emergence book two, emergence book three. There, You're welcome. Just, I, I was, yeah, I was lazy, welcome, and I just, I just put it under, I just put it under one, put it on one. <laughs> I was, just, I was saving you guys clicks. There you go. No, that was, I think if I had even given myself another month, um, I would have taken the time to split it into three novels. Because that's what's going on in that story, and that's why it's hard to identify. Because the person who contacted me said that, you know, since you brought up emergence, I have a hard time identifying where the climax is in that story. I said, well, you probably don't have a hard time, uh, you know, um, identifying where it is because there's three. And you've probably identified all three of them. So, um, this is that moment when we tell you don't do as we do, do as we say. Because last night right. I told you guys you only get one climax. <laughs> you got to make it count. Now I'm telling you, you have three. But no, if I had even had more, a little bit more space from that, even another month to think about it after I finished, I would have just, I would have taken that, I would have gone back. Because now looking at it, I could see that it's an easy split on those three novels, where to split them. And you, I'd need to add a little couple of some transition scenes and it would have been done. But at the time, um, and this is something, this is kind of a cautionary tale to all of you, I was so burned out on the pressure 
to get that posted and like, you know, easily five or six emails a day asking where it was, when it would be posted, why did I take it down, da 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 that I just wanted it off off my desk. I wanted it off my, you know, I wanted it off. I just didn't want to deal with it. And that's why um, I'm, I'm over here squinting. I know, it's terrible, isn't it? And so I told myself I would never um, get in myself into that situation again where I lose perspective about my own work. Um, because I knew that there were some craft issues in that story that I wasn't happy with. And, you know, people like to point out those craft issues to me, <laughs> which um, I there's nobody who who sees my flaws as well as I do, so I really, truly don't need it. Um, but there you go. So um, I don't always, you know, I, I like to have um, good craft, but this is my hobby and it doesn't always happen. <laughs> it's not always perfect. And sometimes my story is three novels in one, and so there's three climaxes. Suck it up, buttercups. Um, you know, honestly, I mean, when it comes to fan fiction, um, I'll let my craft issues go. I, I have vanity scenes in there. There's, um, outlandish characterizations There's surreal motivations and I don't care. Don't give a shit. But that's not what these shows are about. These, these, um, these shows are about, um, how to do it, uh. Acknowledging that I, I do know how to do it, even if you don't see me doing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I I like doing it. Um, I prefer to have in my fan fiction have my craft be good. Um, and Emergence was my first foray back into fan fiction after a long break from it. So mm-hmm. uh, I made a lot of decisions that were, um, I would call them externally motivated <laughs> there was a lot of external motivation in that but but the thing is you know i i i'm always striving to improve um my craft in my um fan fiction as well but you know sometimes sometimes because i have a perfectionist bent and some ocd issues sometimes i have to just step away from a problem and just either put it down and let it alone for a few months and not keep trying to um, fix something that seems beyond me at the time or I can't quite identify what the issue is or just let it go and let it be imperfect. And it's a toss-up at any given moment which one it's going to be. Step away and reconsider or just let it be what it is. That was a big RT challenge, and it was very um, – she she challenged the shit out of me, I'll be perfectly honest, because up until that point, and I've said it before, I haven't really had a lot of um, – um, up until that point, there hadn't anybody been on site who was prolific as myself um, in the challenge, and she pushed me. I was like, bitch, what? 
post again, damn it. <laughs> How many words she got? It was, I got really competitive with her. And um, I didn't even know her. Uh, uh, but so, yeah, it kind of, because um, I, I hadn't had that before. Because nobody else in the challenge at that point was um, putting out that kind of word count. Um, so it was really, uh, it was it, it, it was nice to have some something to um, work against because uh, her word count was outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we I, that first that first month um, we both cleared like 180k in the first month, and it was um, yeah. It was like, and I got to the end of the month, and I went, "Holy crap, what just happened?" <laughs> but you know, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't mention my craft issues to diminish anybody's enjoyment of the story, or to tell you that you shouldn't enjoy it because it's got craft problems, or, or even to say, well, you know, it, there's nothing, there's nothing. I'm not trying to in any way diss my own work. I'm just, a, I would never pick, pull apart somebody else's story for craft issues. Ever, so if I'm going to point out an example of where there's something's got a craft problem, I'm going to use my own work. And of the things I've written, that one has the most. So that's why I picked on it. I think that if I had a, um, I really, honestly, um, the thick that makes me hesitate the most on my site is Birth of the Serpent King. And I know a lot of people love that story and I'm I'm really proud that you guys love it a lot. But <laughs> there's oh, I have issues with Birth of the Serpent King. I I really do. Um but um it's because I pantsed it and um, that that's what happens when I pants and um I just suck it up. But doesn't it feel loose when you read it? I mean, doesn't it? <laughs> loose? Um, I wouldn't call it loose. I, no. Um, no. I think that there. I think that um, your your plotting tends to be um, super tight, and your scenes are are very sharp about their focus. Um, so I don't know that I would call it loose, but I do think that there's a couple times where in Birth of the Serpent King that you... Go um, ahead. It's fine. I won't cry. It, it's, it's just... <laughs> there's not as much... Um, it's not as sharp in some areas. And I don't mean that it's... That sounds negative, and I don't mean it that way at all. It's almost like... Um, it's almost more like a stroll through the park rather than, um, you know, a, a, sprint. A, brisk, a, a sprint from point A to point B. You know what I mean? It, it's like it, it's kind of like the scenic tour. <laughs> you know what that is? For those of you who might not be aware of the fact that I, because I did have a broken foot, I was also stoned. Because my foot hurt like a motherfucker. So I would say through most of the rest of the Serpent King, I was a little stoned on a regular basis. <laughs> so if Harry was stopping to smell the flowers, it's because I was 
high on Oxycontin, which is the only um, painkiller I can actually take uh, over the counter that won't um, give me an allergic reaction. Um, so my options are either a morphine shot in an emergency room or Oxycontin. Um, and so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that that was that was it had more of a. Um, I mean, I loved it. It just it didn't have that. Uh, laser sharp focus um that some of your stories have um but i mean it's just it has it just has a different vibe and i and i mean i still really i really enjoy it you know it's one of my favorites um it's my stone vibe <laughs> your stone you vibe <laughs> structurally um i'm most proud recently of harry potter i mean uh, i'm courting hermione granger Um, I'm I'm very I'm very proud of the structure of that particular work. But I think my tightest plot recently would be the legacy, which you guys haven't read. <laughs> I want to talk about that story again because it's it's really tight. It was tight. <laughs> I would say it's probably as tight as No Enemy Within, which is like a knife. I mean. Um, Book in the Lanty Legacy series is really, really sharp. But it's supposed to be because it's supposed to hurt. You know, there's um there there's this you know, uh they're betrayed by Earth. And when I was structuring it, um originally that story was actually literally called Left for Dead and Pegasus. Um, and so I wanted to structure the plot in such a way that it hurt, that there was like this sharpness, this emotional sharpness for the reader. And so I don't know if I actually accomplished that, but but that was my oh, goal going into the plot. You did. <laughs> you definitely did. And in Legacy, um... You can tell me to shut up if I'm like, you know, saying things okay. I shouldn't. Um, you were so sharp in your first draft. I and I this just from the way I, I read what your comments were about it, that it was almost like too sharp, and I know. and you kind of softened it a little, if that makes sense. Um, I did. I had to in your edit it because because it was. Whew. It was. It, it was like it was. It was the you know. It was like oh, here's a sword. Fall on it. <laughs> well, literally. I don't mean that. Was, I don't mean that. Literally, um, there's a scene where James has a sword, and you you you'll, you'll just have to wait for it. But my first draft was literally like that sword sliding in the whole time. That's the way I felt, and I actually didn't mean the example literally. Now, as soon as it was out of my mouth, I was like, oh, I could have meant that literally. But it was. It was like. This this story is a sword. <laughs> Impale yourself. <laughs> and when you got done, it was kind of like, wow. And then you did a second draft, and it still is incredibly focused, but it is softer, and it, um, you know, it's they both both versions were incredible. The softer version feels more um, complete, I guess. Yeah. But. Um, 
I got yeah, super got- focused on one character, James Potter, and um, I I honestly, to be perfectly honest, it isn't often that um, I really love a character, um, but I just kind of like, I'm like deeply infatuated with my character at this point. <laughs> it was like, I gotta, yeah. I got a crush on my character. Because he's different. He's um, he's different from Harry. He's, um, um, I mean, he's not like serious. He's, He's just, and there's so little about James Potter in, in canon, and you can do so much with him. And, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, when you have a blank slate like that and you can interpret them in a way, um, uh, you know, in a way that gives them a life that I'd never experienced before. I mean, I fell in love with him, too. I was like. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah I mean. It, it was it was good. It was good. And and I will always now see James Potter as Matt Bomer, so um I know, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just that that headcanon accepted. You know, if I ever write James, I'm just gonna have to say I have a feeling here is fan cast for James because that's just the way it has to be. <laughs> there the is only is. one. There can well, be that's only okay one. Because I think that in my head now, whenever I see Shacklebolt, I see Idris Elba. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's all kinds of perfect. I think when I was thinking about it, when you said the story that you thought that had best, I think the story I've written this year that had the best um, of the published works that had the best craft was probably Memories, um, which is the one where Gibbs I love Bill Memories. This is him amnesia when he comes back, and it's as close as I've written really to a character study. It's entirely from his point of view. Um, and to me, for me, the climax of that story. Was give with him coming to the point where he could accept um, and understand the mistakes that he had made and want to fix them. Right. It was just it was a very quiet kind of internal moment where um, he changed, and it wasn't like a big scene or anything like that. Um, it was just it was just a, an awareness that he'd messed up and that he wanted that not only had he messed up but that he wanted to fix it and that he intended to fix it. And the whole, um, you know, him finally um, getting together with Tony at the end, that to me was all the falling action, um, not the climax of the story. Um, and I know some people probably wouldn't see it that way, but I get to have my way on this. Because <laughs> <So. laughs> it's yours. I did it's the alpha fun. read for um, Memories, and I remember reading it and thinking, what, girl? <laughs> Because it was very unique. It, it was not something you'd done before that I'd seen um, in your work, and I was I didn't even know what to do with that. I was like, "What?" You know. <laughs> so it's always like interesting when when someone that you um, interact with a lot as a writer does something you don't expect. Yeah, it's like, where'd that come from? What'd they do? <laughs> you okay over there? <laughs> That was unexpected. But I thought that that one had, um, for me, had the best um, overall craft in it um, in terms of the way it fell into, um, it kind of came out exactly the way I plotted it, uh, and I was really happy with, I wasn't sure about, because I'd written something else entirely in Gibbs' point of view, um, which was Death of Silence, which was the story before that one, and this one was going to be a little bit different because it was just dealing hugely with internal motivation and not external um, 
as, as, Death of Silence is all it was all about Tony, even though it was all from Gibbs' point of view. There, um, yeah, yeah. But um, Memories was all about Gibbs, and it was all all about him, um, his him, him changing, and him coming to coming into um, an understanding about what he wanted for his life and what was important and what his priorities needed to be and how he had to be different to make it happen. And, um, yeah, so that, that one from a, from a craft perspective is the one that I was, um, the most happy with this year. Um, I was also very happy with the way, um, it found please return came out, but that one's not done. So it's still in the editing phase. Um, I think one of the um, you're not going to believe this, but my thought just fell completely out of my head. <laughs> oh, that happens to me too. <laughs> I promise I'm not that old. It just flush right out the floor. I don't even know where it went. They rolled away. That go. <laughs> oh fuck it. Um. So. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I, I do too. It's a real problem for me because I had in the back of my mind that I might like to do a Tony David Shepherd. That's never happening. <laughs> It'd be like incest. I just can't. No, it's just, it, 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 it's impossible. Yeah, it's impossible at this point. Um, not not ever happening. Um, blame Jilly. Uh, I will take the credit and the blame. This is one of those circumstances when I will take both. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I did have it kind of like percolating in the back of my mind. Yeah, and it would have been really pretty. <laughs> It would, but you know, also you know, I, I, but I mean, how many, you know, Tony other pairings have I given people to kind of open up the possibility of him with somebody else? There are other options, you know. My favorite is Steve McGarrett. I mean, oh, that's no Steve. lie. Um, that is the mothership. Mm. I don't even what. Come on, <laughs> just <laughs> the moment it hit my brain, it was like, oh, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, that's good. But you know, I I've all because of all the different pairings I have in. I mean, I I like him in all a lot of different, a lot of different pairings. So I have one with Don Epps in the works, and um, I have several with Steve in the works. Um, um, I you know I started one, I started one. I don't know if I'm ever going to do anything with this, um, with him and um. Uh, David Rossi, but I just then I kind of wrote this father vibe with Dave in a story, and I just can't get that out of my head now. And so that is gonna like die on the vine because sometimes you know your own head cannon just gets in the way of your characters getting laid. Um, I did a thing to myself. I was really on board with Tony Ian until I wrote Ian Edgerton with Gar- Garcia, and I I did a thing to myself. I. You owed. I think it. Yeah, I I OTP'd myself. 
terrible when that happens. Now, I see, I can OTP myself, or I can, I can, I, it's not an OTP, I can mothership myself and still, you know, um, because I wrote that one short with, with Tony Garcia, and I was really digging it, and I kind of got an idea for um, a, a longer story, probably a novella length, that I kind of was sort of noodling on. Um, and that kind of, like, broke my brain. It was like, wait a minute, what am I doing? <laughs> I didn't have an um female female character list for Tony. Maybe I need to make one. But um yeah, I I, I really like Ian Tony. Um I've done that one. I actually feel like I kind of and I'm doing a sequel to De Novo, so I feel like I not only have done that one, but I'm going to get the opportunity to truly exercise the beast so that I can move on and not feel like I need to revisit it again. Um, well, I could see Tony in a threesome, and I could see Penelope in a threesome. I could not see Ian Edgerton in a threesome. Yeah, I... I, I don't see him sharing anybody with anybody. <laughs> He's not a sharer. <laughs> he skipped that lesson in kindergarten. <laughs> just, I just got a feeling about that. He's not going to be... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's uh yeah. He definitely isn't the sharing sort. Um oh. <laughs> I don't know, Phantom is probably gonna hate me over this one, but I got to noodling on a new new Tony Steve story and mm-hmm. I was I somehow in my plotting, um Gibbs Danny Crackton. <laughs> and I'm like, what yeah. is this? I know it if it doesn't make you sharply head tilt the idea. <laughs> um that's what Gibbs would that's kill what... Danny. Gibbs would kill huh? him. Gibbs would kill him. He probably would. And that's so it'd be it's gonna be very unfortunate if that's the way <laughs> but I was just like I don't know, it's just it's just I was like why is this working in my plotting for this story? And I kind of sketched out a couple of scenes, and I was like, I don't know, this is kind of working for me, and it really shouldn't. Hmm. Maybe I need to lay do off you. the Xanax. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, do you? It'll be fine. Yeah. Danny does talk more than Tony, which is amazing. Um, yeah, he talks a so, lot. Yeah. But he also is less um, bullyable. And if that's not that's not actually a word, but I like making up words. He's less bullyable than Tony is. Um, yeah, because Danny would p- punch Gibbs in the mouth. Yeah, he would. See, everybody's everybody's still head tilting. There's just like straight up your head, people. You don't want to spray anything. Um, yeah, the first time Gibbs tried to smack Danny's head, he would get shot. <laughs> <laughs> he would definitely get punched. Yeah, Kano kicking Ziva's ass would be awesome. That was actually one of my favorite moments, even though it, you almost don't see it because Tony doesn't see it and you're in his point of view, is in If Sound when um, John breaks Ziva's nose. <laughs> it, was like, it was like just a good moment for me. <laughs> As I said earlier, you got to have your fun where you can. You do, because I'm, um, 
you know, it's one of those things. It's like sometimes I wonder how you warn, how to warn for stuff, because um, I obviously don't kill anybody in Denova. The story's done, but my plot for the sequel is that you know she's gonna, Diva's gonna die in the sequel, and so like you know I always disclose Honor character, character death. death. <laughs> oh. I always disclose character death. So I was like, do I need to warn people in the first novel that she's going to die in the second novel? Is that mean? I don't think so, no. No. To tell pe- not tell people in advance that, you know. I don't Although, think so. Have, anybody who reads my stuff who hasn't figured out that I don't like Siva is really missing the bus. <laughs> yeah, the bus is like three states away already. <laughs> <laughs> That bus is halfway to Albuquerque, and you weren't paying attention. But, you know, this um this discussion, um, the discussion about climaxes and falling action and that kind of thing, um, has been good for, even for me, for my plotting for November. It's because, you know, even though... Um, I usually, you know, well, like, most, not 90, 95% of the time going into a story, I know exactly where the climax is going to be. There are a few times where I'm like, it's a little wiggly. <laughs> it's a little wiggly in that part of the book. We'll see exactly what's going to happen when I get there. But most of the time I know what's going to happen. Um, but this got me really thinking a little bit more analytically about um, um, thinking about, you know, my craft and that and looking at a couple of, of – um, um, things and I and I just the just the re reassessment of climax and falling action and thinking about this so much the last two days. I I got to add some interesting new stuff into my plot for um, November. So um, I need to actually stop doing that because if it needs to stop growing. <laughs> right. I, I my goal is to to get between fifty and sixty k. Um, I have a very specific story I want to tell. It isn't the only story that I have to tell in this verse, but this particular story, um, I know exactly what I want to tell and how I want to tell it, and my goal is to be under 60K for the total. So it isn't going to be a marathon for me. It's going to be a very careful drive towards 50 um, in, um, in November because um I want to, on my first draft, really, because because of Nano and because this is, people are going to be reading it, um, I don't want to, um, sometimes I'll plow through a rough draft and then go back and um, and smooth things out and soften the edges, but because of Nano, when I go into a Nano, I, I, I want to make sure my soft edges are already in there. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that um, the first readers uh, don't come into the final draft um, and get any serious surprises. I don't know why. I just I I feel like there has to be consistency. I understand. I understand. There's. Um, I wanted to keep this nano close closer to fifty or. 50, 75,000 was sort of my initial target. I think 100,000 is more realistic um, because initially, um, because I was striving for um, to try to keep things a little bit tighter this time, 
I had cut out um, a lot of. Actually, what I think when I when I took it out, I wasn't as happy with the plot. What I consider relevant side plots, um, because um, the shepherds ultimately are very important in the resolution of the story and the climax of the story, and mm-hmm. the subplots, the side plots with them. Um, in in my initial draft were cut out, and so their entrance into the story um, towards the resolution, once I had that initial draft done that would have kept my word count down, um, felt very abrupt, as opposed to them being a part of the story. It's like they're they're in, they're integral to the resolution, but I don't introduce them until the resolution, because I was trying to you know streamline Tony's plot line, and that ultimately felt. Um, didn't it didn't feel right, so I um, went back and and figured those subplots back in, so that I could um, weave them into the story. Um, and because Steve is in, in because Steve is in um, the, the other thing I didn't even think about the consequences of this. And because sometimes you get tunnel vision when you're plotting, and you don't think mm-hmm. about the consequences of certain things. Steve is in Patrick's pack, so. Um, by cutting out all of the subplots and side plots with that pack, um, I effectively cut Steve out of the story until the resolution too. <laughs> Sorry. I, I know I it's ridiculous, it like right? Before, you're like, what the fuck am I doing? Now, here's <laughs> something that I um I I have done something different for myself for Rough Trade. I'm trying to, you know, challenge myself as a writer. Um, and I've separated out my plot. Um, normally, um, when I plot, I have external and internal motivations um, for the same character moving through my story. Um, but this time, I have um, when I when I did my plot, I assigned external motivation events to Rodney, in and internal motivation events to John. And then I blended them together. So it's an experiment, and it might fail. Um, But it's about um, Rodney's driving the plot, and John's driving the relationship. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It does make sense. And I I like the... um, I, I like I like that I really like the approach. It feels very. Um, I'm, this is going to sound like maybe like a weird word, but the word that pops into my head it feels really organic that way, even though you're doing it quite deliberately. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, when I was t- when I was plotting it, I, I, and I did my event plot first, um, and all these events were um, Rodney's events, um, even though there's a whole crew around him um he and the decision to put Rodney in charge of the odyssey was was a big one for me because normally John's in charge and um i wanted to approach it from a different perspective um and John and Rodney have a history and it's not all good it's it's not all good history because um coming out of college they both had um conflicting ideas about how to to save humanity and to to save earth and ultimately both both of them failed in that um 
and uh, Rodney didn't approve of the, the, the synthetic project, and probably wouldn't have sacrificed. Probably wouldn't have surrendered to the Ark if it hadn't been for her um, his sister and her kids. Because um, he didn't want a synthetic body. Um, so Rodney is is a different animal in synthetic. He's um, he's a little harder. He um, there's a lot of sacrifices he made. He's a little angry about the failures um, on Earth. And um, by the time they reach um, their destination in Kepler. Uh, Humanity has been gone for over a thousand years. And it's been 3,000 years since they left Earth. And they haven't gotten any kind of message or communication from Earth in over a thousand years. So, dealing with that loss is immediate because they all went into the ark 3,000 years later they come out of the ark so anyways um, so it's just um, it's been a really interesting movement through my world building process um, and my process of character and moving the characters into synthetic bodies and that whole mind-body issue and their emotional um, issues and the conflicts of, of being in a synthetic body. Well, and there's so much um, that you have to emotionally account for in what you're doing. Um, it's just it's such a massive undertaking. Because um, just that one point you mentioned about Effectively, it's sort of like going to sleep one night and in the morning you wake up and everyone's dead. Um, I mean, not literally everyone because they got the people in the ark, but that, you know, you you go to sleep and the, the world you wake up, the world you know is gone. Um, even, if, even if you had left it, it doesn't mean that it's not a startling shock when it's um, suddenly taken. Um, or suddenly just not anymore. And that's just a really difficult thing to deal with. And so progressing um, a known character through something that difficult and traumatic is, you know, requires a lot of, it requires a lot of effort. Um, and I think that that's something that people need to kind of bear in mind um, about this, both writers, readers, everybody, is that this kind of progressing people you know, working on progressing characters through sometimes very difficult situations, it can be really draining. Um, it can be, maybe, it might be more time-consuming than people are used to it being um, for a writing project. Um, and I'm so going to take my time because of that. I really want to um, to explore the psychological ramifications of it really fully. So, um and like I said, I'm, I've, I've only given myself 60K to do this. And truthfully, um, I'm not really good to stick in with a word count, especially in situations like this. Um, I do have it plotted out, and my plot tells me I've got 60K, um, but no plan survives engagement. <laughs> I 
Yes, no plot in in no plot in uh, in survives engagement with the actual writing. Um, but you know, if all you writers out there, just give yourself a little more slack than you might normally um, going into. We're so close to nano now. Um, just give yourself a little bit more space. Um, let yourself explore a little more. Um, you know, if I don't know, I guess I guess I would just for the, for the sake of your craft, if this is what you're trying to do, is work on developing characters and moving them and evolving them, is give yourself time to focus more on the craft aspect of it and what you're doing, and don't push as hard on things like you know we're all striving for the fifty thousand words in November, but. I don't know, and I can't, I can't be for care, but for me, word count is a secondary consideration um, in November because th- getting the characters right and the world building right, that is what's most important to me, not... Um, for me, it would be weird, I think, if I didn't hit 50K in November. Um, unless I'm the I most. was thinking the same thing. I was, it would be, that's it'd be weird. I mean, you and I both, the idea of not hitting 50K in a month is ridiculous. Yeah. It would be very odd, unless something, unless there's an external factor that I can't control. But, uh, you I know, mean, all I've things being equal. In the last week. Yeah. All <laughs> things being equal, I'm, I'm going to hit 50K. But, you know, if I didn't, if I didn't, because I was really um, focusing on my craft, this, this is one of those times that it wouldn't bother me. I would just kind of go. No, you know. Honestly, for me, I get more irritated when I go over my projected word count than I do under. <laughs> yeah, I mean, now is a little bit weird because you, you you are striving for a minimum of fifty k, but um, you know, it's just this is such a different exercise for a lot of people. It's a very different exercise um, to the degree that I'm doing it. It's a very this is a very different exercise for me, and um, I want to make sure that I give that the energy. Um, and the the focus that it deserves, and not um, worry about other external pressures like hitting a word count or something like that. For me, um, because this is a very um, it's, it's going to be very emotional. Um, I would compare it to um, when I wrote Emotional Clockwork. Um, it was. A, Um, very, uh, it wasn't a difficult write, but it was a meaningful write. And so um, I I anticipate having the same experience with Synthetic that I did with Emotional Clockwork. Hmm. Those of you who are curious, the climax for Emotional Clockwork is when John realizes in therapy um that he's not in therapy because he's gay, he's in therapy because he's emotionally retarded. <laughs> <laughs> when he admits out loud that he stopped believing he was lovable when his mother died, that is the climax of emotional clockwork. And that that was actually something I intended to bring up last night. Um and I just slipped out of my head when we were talking about falling action. When you, um, there is no 
we've given a lot of different examples of what falling action looks like, and there's no um, definitive way, there's no prescription for what falling action needs to look like, but it needs to have some synergy with your climax. Um, And, you know, it's sort of like, you know, typically you wouldn't have an action movie where um, the falling action is all... Um, um, why am I struggling with this word? Um, where the where the where the um, the falling action typically is not something like emotional growth or um, maturity or you know um, cementing relationships. You typically it's just. You wouldn't move into, you know, like a, a kind of a kumbaya thing after a big um, action sequence. And we gave an example of that tonight where it just felt a little odd when there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't like good synergy between um, the climax and the falling action. And I don't think there's any, like I said, I don't think there's a prescription for it, but just It consider, needs to feel natural. It needs to feel natural it needs to, the to tone feel of like story. Moving into... The end. Um, I totally did that hand thing. If I was wearing Julie's monitor, I'd have already walked like six miles. <laughs> I've been gesturing a lot too because every time I flail for words, I'm not, I don't know why my word retrieval is so off tonight. But um, when I'm flailing for words, my hands get extra busy, as if they can summon them by magic with <laughs> magical finger wiggles. Um, yeah. So, but just consider, you know, you, the falling action f- should feel natural to what you've written so far. That's what it should be. Um, it should feel natural to your story. It should not feel um, contrived or tacked on. Or um, and if and if you really can't think of what in the world you could do after your climax, to maybe you're done. Maybe you have a steep. Maybe, maybe you're maybe you're that TV show that, you know, shows the guy getting arrested and it goes to black and there's the credits. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's that story. Um, you can put Dawn in the middle of your name and move on with your life. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just call you the Belisario of rough trade and, you know, own it and go on. Um, but, you know, just just make, make your falling action um, fit the story. And if you've got... If you've got 20,000 words of falling action, that's fine. If you've got 50 words of falling action, that's fine. You know, whatever it is, it's just I think that the whole point of this is to just be a little bit more mindful about. Um, I guess if there's one point I could say people, it's like when you've, when, you've, when you've hit the climax of your story and you see the action start to rise again, Stop and think about what you're doing. <laughs> Here you go. There's our cautionary tale. When the action starts to come up stop again, and think. stop and think. <laughs> Here's some um, the big advice that you get when you're writing um, is to start in the middle. Um, and they don't necessarily mean to start in the middle of your book or in the middle of your idea. Or they start to, in the middle of an of a moment that will draw your reader in. Um, and sometimes, um, especially in formula movies like disaster movies, um, they start you in the middle of a disaster, like the, the day after tomorrow, 
when the disaster would be a climax in any other movie, it's the beginning of the movie. Um, Independence Day, when the alien invasion would be the climax in a lot of movies, and in Independence Day, it's not. The climax of Independence Day is when the alien gets Randy Quaided. <laughs> right, the asshole. I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> um, for me, a lot of times for me, um, starting in the middle, the way I write starting in the middle is the middle of something changing for my character. Because um, I do tend to focus, I tend to be character focused more than plot focused. So, um, and that is not, <laughs> that is not, there's no valuation on that statement. Um, I, I know I've gotten a lot of emails and had a lot of interaction with people after I say things about my craft sometimes or the way I write things, that I'm valuing something that I do higher than something that somebody else's. I'm not. I am truly just talking about the way I do it, and I am a, more character-focused than I am plot-focused. So, you know. So when I'm looking at starting in the middle, it's usually not in the middle of action. It's usually in the middle of when something is changing for my character that is going to set the tone for story and sometimes it's action and sometimes it's just a moment um, where something is different and so that can be what start in the middle doesn't necessarily mean bullets are flying and there's a dead body on the ground Um, that doesn't necessarily mean what start in the middle means it could but it doesn't it, it may not be that literal so the, I, I think of it as a moment of change where something, because there's no point in bringing, um, to, for me, there's no point in bringing somebody, people into a story um, where you're going through all the things that are the same. This is sort of like that episode retelling, which is one of my, um, when you're retelling an episode with subtle, subtle little changes here and there, um, and I know some people really dig that. It's not my It's not my jam, but that isn't really... Um, the moment of change is when you're retelling an episode you're not really having, you're not starting in the middle. You're actually starting at the beginning, basically. And um, Whereas if you're going to change something in an episode of a TV show or change something in a movie, um, I would say start at the change. That, that would be start at the middle. Start where there's a moment of something happening that's different. As opposed to retelling the entire episode up to that moment of change. I hate that. I fucking hate that. If I wanted to, if or I wanted to read Harry, Harry Potter, Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, I would fucking read Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. I'm not on fanfiction.net to read Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Right. So if the, if the moment where something changes for Harry is, let's say it's the moment that Sirius gets on um, the Hippogriff. Blanked on a name. But the moment he gets on the hippogriff, what if Harry goes with him instead? What if that's the moment of change? Okay. Start in the middle means start at that moment because that's where something is different. That is where um, there's a pivotal moment right there. That's the change. Start the story there. It doesn't mean go back. When you start with Harry being left on the doorstep at number four, Privet Drive, and introduces to the Dursleys, well, I've I read the book. I've been there, done that. I got all this. <laughs> Fast forward to where there's a difference. So, um, so that's about that's about the whole start in the middle thing. Um, 
is it doesn't have to literally mean um, drop people in the middle of a scene um, and then you have to backtrack and explain the beginning of the scene. Because um, I've seen that a few times where the story starts in the middle of a scene and then you have to back up and explain how you got to the middle of the scene. I hate that. And that's no offense to anybody who does that. I hate it. Yeah, it's a little bit... I think I think that that might be people taking um, start in the middle a little bit literally. Um, it's like in the middle of a scene. Uh, scenes typically start at the beginning, um, but start in the middle is is it's a little bit more of a figurative expression. <laughs> oh, someone mentioned earlier. I, I know that um, Kira, you've talked about this before on the show about someone mentioned, um, and I, I think it was just an offhand remark about not competing um, with word count. Um, don't don't um, the only person you're competing with in nano is yourself, and that's I think that's really important for people to remember. Um, always, always. Oh, yes, the only person you're except trying for me and to, Jilly. I'm competing against yeah. her. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just <laughs> <laughs> one of those do as I say, not as I do moments. But no, that yes. was just because you know, the, the word count was very challenging for me that year, and that's what that was about. It was not about her craft. It was about um, encountering someone who was putting out the same kind of word count because, honestly, there have been times during Rough Trade where I've slowed down and not posted as often because I felt like um, my productivity could be um, um, discouraging to other participants. No, and I didn't know that because I um, had never – I discovered Rough Trade as it was ending. So it was like I discovered Rough Trade. I saw a bunch of stories that looked interesting. I was fascinated. Um, I discovered it through Lady Holder's site. And I bookmarked like, I don't know, 20 stories. And the next morning they were gone. I kid you not. (laughs) I kid you not. I found Rough Trade on clean-off day. And I had no clue what was going on, right? And it wasn't members only at that time. So I had had no experience. I didn't know. And since I hadn't read any of those stories, I didn't know what anybody's kind of word count volume was. And, and so then I discovered Kira's site, and I started reading Kira's stuff. And and I got I started following Rough Trade. And I think I watched a Rough Trade before. No, I actually signed up for the very next one. I signed up for the very next Rough Trade after I discovered it. And so I had no clue what to expect. So I just started writing. And I had no idea that um, that you know five to eight thousand words a day would be off-putting for people. Uh, some people, not off, obviously, it wasn't off-putting for everybody. A lot of people um, were very supportive. But I know that well, you know, I don't I've, remember getting any complaints about your. Um, oh, I did. Productivity. Though. You did. Um, yeah, there was. You know, but just don't do that. Friends. But just don't do that. Don't do that. The first, I, I think, I think I was some kind of comment about something like, um, um, it was late in the month of something, some kind of comment about it showing off or something like that, um, and I just kind of like whatever. I don't understand that where that's coming from, but I was like, am I not supposed to be? And then I was like, what? And then I kind of was like, well, but the the uh, the lady who runs the site is writing this much. Why are you bitching at me? Because <laughs> so. they won't bitch at me. Um. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, but uh, so I was kind of prepared. Then I got kind of a lot of um, 
when I got a lot more bitching in the second rough trade I did, I, I was a little bit prepared for it since a couple people had bugged me about that the, um, the first go-around. But, you know, it was just um, – and I, I, I wouldn't be – you know, I don't find um, – Honestly, when someone has a really uh, is more productive, is writes more than I do, gets more out than I do, or whatever, I usually am like, "Wow, that's awesome." Um, um, but uh, yeah, don't don't pitch yourself against anybody. Um, I, I would say that I would say Kira challenges me. I don't really necess- I don't compete with her, so don't don't feel like you're competing with anybody. This is the rough trade experience is about you. Um, and do people, somebody asked me if people still pick at me. Um, I've been told I shouldn't be doing rough trade um, by more than one person. You know, something that was like a big double bird on that moment. It's like, kiss my ass. That's like telling me that I can't do my own challenge. Because the yeah, point the first... was that they felt like Jilly was too experienced to be on rough trade. Well, not to be an asshole about this, but I am the most experienced writer on Rough Trade. Yeah, you are. <laughs> By far. Well, what they asked me is, haven't I learned what I needed to learn yet? You know, it's like, haven't you gotten it yet? And it was a little bit of a dig, like, what's wrong with you that you haven't gotten your shit together yet? And shouldn't you leave space for newer writers? And I was like... But that's not what Rough Trade's about. Well, and it was, it was like, A, Kira has never turned anyone away from the challenge as far as I know who signed up on time right so it's not like there was the one challenge one where she said if she got to a certain it was the first time we did little black dress where she said if we got to a certain um word count hundred that it was a hundred people, people that I was that but damn that off. was gonna be like three projects for each person that's 300 projects yeah, and we still got pretty damn close to 100, but we didn't hit it. So you, and that was the only time right. you even mentioned that you would have a cutoff was that first little black dress because we our sign up numbers were so high it was sort of staggering. And but the thing is, is I wouldn't count myself or any of the moderators in that count to begin with. So even if I did have a minimum or a maximum number of participants, because Julie's a moderator on Rough Trade, she wouldn't count in that total. I wouldn't count her or Lady Holder or Senna or, or myself um, or Original Tempest because they're mods. Well, there you and go. they would not be taking somebody else's space on the list. Um, but the idea that Jilly's too experienced to be on Rough Trade um, could also apply to me. And Lady Holder. And Lady Holder. So Most that person emailed or messaged um, Jillian told her she was too experienced to be on Rough Trade. Are you fucking serious? Because that's not what it's about. And honestly, when I encounter a writer who tells me they have nothing left to learn about their craft, I want nothing to do with them. Don't tell me you don't have anything to learn. Because I've been writing for 30 years and I've got plenty to learn. How long have you been writing? Uh, I can't remember back that far. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I started, I started, I started writing, um, writing down stories when I was twelve. But I was telling stories in my head when I was 
you know, as far back as I can remember. Well, I count my um, first my finished book as my moment of um, done. Ta da! I'm I, I'm there. I mean, somebody asked me to say that I I'm not I'm not publishing fiction. No. Um, have I? Do I have? Have I had something that looks like a book <laughs> that has binding and paper <laughs> out there? Yes, but um, unless you're learning to le- le- use that particular type piece of software, um, it uh, it's you would never encounter it. <laughs> <laughs> I have written. Well, that's a kind of publication. Yeah, it it is count it does I mean it counts as publication. Um the um um it's just it's different, you know, in my mind. I'm not a professional I'm not a published fiction writer. Um but I've written millions of words in technical documentation, publications, contributed to books. Um uh I, I wouldn't even know how to um I mean I've written, you know, multiple manuals that were four or five, six hundred pages. So um yeah, so I've, but that's a, it's it, one of the, you know, I, fiction is a very different skill set, so, um, and but a lot of fan fiction writers have backgrounds in technical publications, so. Um, technical and journalism. Yeah. Yeah. That's why they say that what roughly, what, 75% of fan fiction writers are professional writers? They all do it. They're not all writing fiction, but they're, but they're professional writers in some, in some way or another. Now, most of those years, my job title was not technical writer. There were, there were a few years where my job title was technical writer, but most of those years it was not. But what happened was is I was the best writer in the group and the fastest writer. So um, if something needed to be documented, I'm the one that did it, and then often I would wind up with a side project or wind up wearing four different hats where I had the job that was you know on my business card and – then there's all this other, you know, usually related to documentation that needs to be put out, um, whether in print form or, uh, you know, published online. So, um, but yeah, so I've, you know, I've, I've, I've written a lot. It's just fiction is fiction is where my heart is. And honestly, when I'm, when I'm doing a lot of technical writing, I don't write as much fiction um, because it just wears you out. Um, it does. It's you know, you just get tired of being at the keyboard and you know. Uh, you get tired of um, words and commas and grammar and, um. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I've been writing for a long time. Um, but it was just it was just the whole tone of that is haven't you haven't you learned enough yet? And so I think there were two elements of that that um, thing about like one they wanted me off they wanted me to stop participating for some reason whatever. Um, there are people who want me out of the NCIS NCIS fandom and I give them the same double bird. I really don't care what you want. Um, Why? I don't know. Um, Is it that um, whole crybaby thing? I guess. I mean, the comments are really backhanded about stuff like, you know, your your work is entertaining, but it's not any kind of interesting craft kind of thing. I'm paraphrasing what they say. Um, but you I know what? It, I think I'm going to say this. And NCIS fandom, if you're listening, out of all the fandoms that I have encountered online and I have read, NCIS has the largest group of very immature writers. And I don't mean your age. I mean your craft. 
So when someone like Jilly or Zant comes into your fandom and offers you something really well written, you say fucking thank you. Because you don't got a lot going on over there, okay? For fuck's sake. I mean, so for, seri- for fuck's sake. I think it, I don't, Lady Holder I don't is a gift to you. Jilly is a gift. If I show yep. up over there, I'm a fucking gift. Zance is a gift. And trust me, you don't have many. I've been over to your fucking archive. It sucks. <laughs> so, oh, that's so irritating. I mean, you know, there are, and the thing is, I mean, there are some, there are, there are a few writers in the NCAA's fandom who are just, I mean, Lady Raw is stunning. I love her work. Well, yeah, um, but yeah. And um, Litgal's done some. Well, but Lady things. Raw and Litgal both come from Stargate. Yeah. So I mean, they 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 um um there are there, there's that... definitely there's definitely but the thing is is someone someone talked to me somebody brought somebody brought the the big name fan thing um to me once and I and I am pretty adamant about. That I don't perceive myself that way in the NCAA fandom, and one of the biggest, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to perceive myself that way no matter what, because I really do think the big name fan thing is actually more about writers than it is about readers. And Kara and I were having a conversation about this recently, um, a little bit tangentially to your Yellow Brick Road thing about how fandom mm-hmm. is for readers and writers are second class citizens, and the reason why mm-hmm. I think the big name fan thing came into being is because it's the opportunity for the writer to matter more than the reader in the minds of the fandom. Um, and so I think that it's more important to writers almost in a way than it is to readers. And it's something I'm particularly interested in. And because um, I don't like the baggage that goes with it, um, I don't want to feel like I can't have an opinion, which is, you know, I, just, there's all this kind of crap that goes along with it. But the bulk of the NCIS fandom is on fanfiction.net. That fandom is huge on the pit. It is huge. And, and I do not participate not, in that fandom over there. And I may not be I'm on sorry, you guys. very it's long. Not great. <laughs> it's not great. I'm sorry. Well, there it's, are obvious awesome exceptions, Let Lady Raw, Lit Gal among them. Um, but... On the whole, NCIS, the fandom is very immature. Uh, Harry Potter is more mature there are when it comes to craft of, skills. Yeah, there are a lot of um, a lot of the. I think there's there's like two branches of the Harry Potter. Um, there's the obvious young emerging writers. They're young. They're you know late teens into early twenties. Um, they're learning how to write, and you can kind of spot them. Uh, and then there's the writers who've come in from other well-established fandoms that tended to have really good craft, like Stargate and The X-Files and, and the um, stuff like that. And, and the Sentinel. Inception. And, what the fuck happened Inception. in Inception? What? I, I, I'm afraid of Inception. I mean, I, I find the um, writing in Inception intimidating. I have yeah. a couple of Inception projects, and I can't, I just can't. I don't know. There's something with that fandom. I mean, just. They blew my mind yeah, when were, I first got started. I'm just I'm, there I'm, were a couple of um, early NCIS writers who never posted on the pit, um, or if they did, their fixer are off the pit now. Um, who have their um, who were incredible. Those some of the early pioneers in that, like KSL, uh, just brilliant writers who retired from the fandom a long, long time before I ever started writing it. They were gone. Um, 
And then whatever happened on the pit, and not, I'm not saying there aren't any good there aren't good writers on the pit because there are there are some stories I can only get there, and they're they're very nice. But considering the size of the fandom over there, um, it's a lot of very um, novice works. And I know that I'm getting it's it's, it's that the, some of the people that are kind of you know after my head are um, um, players over in the. NCIS fandom on the on the pit, and um, I'm I'm just not interested in playing these games. Not, the Harry Potter fan is pretty big on the pit too, and I've gotten oh, requests for me to put the Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond on um, fanfiction.net, and I've had to tell these people over and over and over again that story is too dirty for the TOS at mm-hmm. fanfiction.net. I left fanfiction.net because I'm too dirty. And then their response is that, because I've gotten the same requests. It's actually people advising me that if I want to boost my visibility and get more readership, that I need to publish on the pit. And I, just, <laughs> I pointed out the same thing. Like, this is just an asinine conversation, I said, but aside from the fact that I really don't care, um, the um, I can't post my The majority of my work I can't put in, the, the, like, the one story I could isn't NCIS anyway, so what the hell? Um, but I pointed out, and they said, well, many authors maintain a separate version that has the sex fade to black. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do that. Let me run right out and have two versions of all my stories. I don't you think so. Point, I am not going to post 268K on fanfiction.net and then have them fucking take it down because it's too dirty. That's right. The back end of fanfiction.net is a nightmare. I'm not wasting my time posting that shit over there. Uh-uh. Fuck them. And I don't need... Um, it's rude. It's terribly rude, but I don't actually need traffic. I got plenty. Yeah. <laughs> the, you know, the the the, um, the pit, um, also the NCIS fandom, Not and, uh, this is not meant to be um, an absolute statement. It is not all-inclusive. Um, because there are exceptions to every rule, but that fandom is very abusive. Um, I'm specifically talking to you, Tiva shippers, who for some reason go out to all the slash stories that are labeled slash, you know her slash, and then bash the writers for. I want to slash. go over to fanfiction.net and kill Ziva. <laughs> And maybe, like, have Tony take Gibbs upstairs and have sex with him, and Gibbs will be on bottom. There you go. That would just, like, horrify the fuck out of them. (laughs) (laughs) Just go all in. Just go all in on offending people. I do Um, want to say one thing. Um, we, we, We only have four minutes left, but I do want to say this. If anything in this particular show has offended you, you feel free to send me an email, and if I've said something that upset you, don't take it out on Jilly. You feel free to email me. <laughs> if you don't like, I think your fandom is immature and mean. Fuck you. I'm just saying. Because I will take my... Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna verb you. I'm gonna verb you. I'll cure my sight. Um 
<laughs> before I let the NCIS fandom run me off. Um, but you don't want me to find a new unicorn. That would be contrary to your goals, I think. So if you pissed me off and I became disillusioned and disenchanted with my unicorn, then I would be off writing something else. Tony's her unicorn, by the way, in case you didn't quite get that. I think I guess if I have a unicorn, it's probably John Shepard. (laughs) John's your unicorn? Somebody's probably going to have interpreted that, that Kira's my unicorn. There you go. Kira, you can be my unicorn. (laughs) Okay. I heard your name. I'm going to Kira my site. And by that, she means members only. She's not going to put me up all over her site, although I would be awesome as a site decoration. <laughs> I'll put little KMs as watermarks all over everything. I have to tell you um, that going members only was very, very cathartic. I threatened to do it for years, and no one took me seriously. And when I did it, everyone was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, just scrambling to get on onto the site in case I closed membership. And it, it was mean, I guess, but... It really amused me. And I hardly, I mean, like, maybe like twice a week I have somebody who has a problem, you know, making an account or whatever. So it isn't like a whole lot of maintenance on that front. And I have this one lady who forgets her password twice a month, and that, that that's fine. It, it, it's not, I don't get... The only hate mail I ever got over um, going members only was from the Harry Potter fandom. Um, because if Tiva shippers are assholes, Harry Hermione shippers are bastards. Straight oh, they're terrible. Up. They're terrible. Um, they're like they're like the 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 Scott fans and the Teen Wolf fandom. I mean, they just. They're just on a rampage. But I mean, you gotta remember these Tiva people. These Tiva shippers are the ones who were, sh- were threatening the showrunners, um, the NCIS showrunners. They threatened um, his family when um, Ziva was written on when she was when Cody De Pablo left the show. Uh, they get they get and then when when she was killed, there were more threats against uh, Gary Glassberg. Um, I think they probably killed her character in as a direct result of fans losing their shit. Because that's what I would have done. I'm like, fuck you, I'm going to kill her. <laughs> She's off the show and we're tired of dealing with you people. See how you fucking like that? Click. Anyway, we're down to 47 seconds. You guys have a great weekend. And like I said, if I pissed you off, feel free to let me know. Say goodnight, Julie. Good night, everyone. <laughs>